0: So we are continuing our our series through through Nahum. and and there are times in our Christian walk when we just need to take a deep dive and really kind of just figure out, just wrestle with certain definitions, certain terms that we tend to use as Christians, right? And there's a lot of Christian terms, right? There's a lot of Christian terms we throw out there, right? And you recognize that these terms just, They don't sound familiar when you're speaking of an unbeliever, right? You know, you throw terms like grace out there, or you say love, you can say sin, and, and, and you realize that your definition of those words don't necessarily match up to other people's definitions. And there are times when we throw those words out there, especially in our small groups, we know when we're around Christian brothers and sisters and we're just comfortable with these terms, and we think we understand each other when we say stuff like the holiness of God, we just understand one another, and we just throw these terms out there and, and we don't take a lot of time sometimes to, just to really sit down and think through these terms. So this evening, I want us to consider the term salvation. And I want to think about salvation and what that means, and what does it mean to be saved? Well, what does it mean to be saved? I don't have a full-on definition. I, I just didn't, could, you know, I went through different theology books and they don't really have salvation. It just gave this. They usually have a whole chapter dedicated to it, right? So they're, so. I, my, my short, I guess, not necessarily full definitions not very minimal, I'll say to be saved means you are being set free from captivity and restored to your rightful position. Right, and so so that's, a, that's a quick definition. There's definitely more to being saved than that, but there's definitely not less. Right, again, to be saved this means you are free, set free from captivity and restored to your rightful position. And there's different implications around that. One implication is that you are in captivity. You are enslaved to something. You, you, Someone holds captive over you. Someone's your captor. Someone's your master. It's, it's an indication that you are in captivity. It's not a good thing. It's not a good captivity. You need to be saved from it. There's also another implication of this that you also have a different purpose, that your purpose is not to be enslaved to this captor but you're you have a different purpose in life and so you have to be restored to this position that is supposed to be your identity and and all this is to say is that you must be saved from something for something or you want to be more specific you have to be saved from someone for someone and what, what, I, what I'm trying to say with all this is that salvation itself, salvation comes with a cost. Salvation is not just about being, you know, if I'm going to let someone out of prison once and cool, and then a week later, this person's back in prison, right? It, it just, the salvation doesn't work that way. You don't just get freed out of prison, um, you know, over and over again. Salvation, as biblically defined, is about being freed forever. You're, you're freed out once, and you're restored, and that's permanent. And what that means is that the captors must be destroyed. Evil must be rooted out. Oppression must be stopped. And that means there's, there must be some kind of judgment. When we talk about salvation, there must be some kind of judgment against these captors, against oppression, against evil, against Sin. There has to be some kind of judgment. And so with that, turn with me to Nahum. If you don't know where Nahum is, um, it's in your minor prophets towards the middle of your Bible after Micah. Nahum, and we're we're gonna look we're gonna look at the rest of chapter one here, starting from verse nine. So Nahum chapter one, verse nine to fifteen. And we're going to take a look at this passage. And In this passage, we're going to find that God's glory, God's glory in salvation comes through judgment. Let's read text. Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, this passage itself, uh, there, there are two audiences here that God is speaking to. Now, I want to keep that in mind because it can get a little confusing, especially when the text uses the second, uh, the second person plural noun, right? You. Who is you? Who is, who is God talking to? And there's actually two audiences here. One is Nineveh, and the second is Judah, right? So, so God here is speaking to both, and when we have to take some time to actually just think about the text, about the words that's being used to find out who God is actually speaking to. But in order to to fully kind of get a grasp of this text, we have to get a little bit of the background of Nineveh themselves. And so take a look at me in the middle of this passage in verse 11, because this verse 11 speaks about, speaks to Nineveh. It says, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. And this has to be talking about Nineveh because it's not Judah that is that's being condemned here. It's not Judah that God is saying judgment is coming upon you. This Nahum. Nahum is a prophet that's speaking judgment against Nineveh. And it says, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. So this is the reason why judgment is coming. Let's, let's understand this verse a little bit better. What is, what, is, what is God saying here? Well, take a first look at this phrase, a worthless counselor worthless counselor the the word itself worthless is uh the hebrew word uh belial right sorry the text a little small on that screen um hopefully you guys brought your binoculars um i'll just try to read as much as i can or try to explain to you as best i can uh the hebrew word is belial and it literally translates it means without worth or worthlessness Without worth or worthlessness. So, so speaking about someone who is deceiving others. Deceiving others to pursue, to follow, to worship worthless gods. Because you become what you worship. If you worship worthless gods, you yourself become a worthless one. Does uh, this, this term worthless uh, describe not just Nineveh here, but it's, it's being used to describe uh, just anyone who leads people away from God to follow idols. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 13, um, verses 12 to 14. Deuteronomy, as you guys know, is part of the Torah, it's part of the law given to Israel. And in that passage, it's telling Israel, hey, beware of those who try to lead you astray from worshiping me. Do not worship idols. Because they are worthless. Don't follow these worthless ones. There are, um, a lot, there's a term they use a lot. It's called sons of worthlessness. Sons of Belial. And so we see here that. This sense of worthlessness. Is, it's, it's more than just. Talking about other religions out there, right? This this is not just saying pagans asking you to worship, you know, the sun god and and things like that. We're we're not just talking about, you know, worshiping certain wooden objects. Um, But the term here, Belial worthlessness, is actually being used more than just that, but even talking about those who commit sinful acts of abomination. So it's even talking about those who lead others into sin. And we see this more clearly in these other passages. For this is Judges, in Judges chapter nineteen, verse twenty-two, uh, it says this: As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. You see, these worthless fellows, these sinners in this city wanted to commit sinful acts to this visitor who was dwelling in this old man's house. These men, these worthless men, wanted to commit worthless acts of sin. The same word worthlessness was used to describe the sons of Eli. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, Uh, The sons of Eli were described as worthless men. And it says right after that, it's because they did not know the Lord. The sons of Eli were priests. And they, they did not know how to offer worship, the right sacrifices to God. And so God condemned them. They were not fit to be priests of the Most High Temple. And so they were considered worthless fellows. And so, coming then back to the context of Nahum, here it talks about one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor, and most likely in Nahum is is referring to um, to, the, to the Syrian king, Sennacherib. Sinarsher, uh, sorry, and and this king. This king was the one who led the Assyrian kingdom, the Assyrian empire. Um, and the Syrian empire is, where, that's where Nineveh's capital of, Nineveh's capital of the Assyrian empire, led this empire to challenge Judah and the Lord. And we know that this king was one who wanted to show that the Lord of Israel was no match to their Assyrian gods. Now, This king, Sinatron, he failed. Hezekiah was faithful to the Lord, and and, and the Lord ended up destroying his army. But after after several more years passed by, I forgot how many years, uh, the Assyrian Empire did end up becoming the one that is dominant over Israel, over Judah. And and as we find out more about this Assyrian Empire, as we find out more about Nineveh itself, we find out that the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, as they conquered lands around them, they were filled with violence. They were filled with oppression. And, and more than that, whenever they capture a land, they will actually build temples for their own gods to demonstrate that their gods were greater than, than, other, than the nations they conquered. And so we see here the Assyrian Empire, they, they oppressed their captives, they tortured their prisoners, and they forced the lands, the peoples, to worship their gods. This is what one commentator said about Nineveh, the capitals of the Assyrian Empire. Um, again, we can't read it, sorry, uh, but I'll read it out loud for you here. This commentator, he says this, To Nineveh came the distant chieftains who kissed the royal sheep feet, Rebel leaders parade in fetters and distant deceitful kings tied with dog chains and made to live in kennels. To Nineveh were sent gifts of far-off tributes, heads of vanquished enemies, crown princes as as hostages, and beautiful princesses as concubines in Nineveh. Rulers who experienced rare mercy, carry brick and mortar for building operations. Their recalcitrant captives were flayed, obstinate opponents crushed to death by their own sons. The Nineveh against which the, the prophet Nahum thunders, divine denunciation had become the concentrated center of evil, the capital of crushing tyranny, the epitome of cruelness torture this is the city upon which whom Nahum is proclaiming judgment against and so to understand this context is to understand that this judgment that's being laid out here in Nahum is one that Nineveh deserved and so this leads then to our next point is that we will see in this passage the complete end of Nineveh. And we see this in verse 9 to 10, and we see it later in verse 14. And in verse 9 to 10, um, here again, just to talk about who is being addressed here, I believe here that Israel here is being addressed. Judah is being addressed here, right? And, and Judah here, and the reason I believe that is because it's a, I believe it's a continuation from verse 8, which speaks to Judah, and in verse 9, when he says, what do you plot against the Lord? This here is talking about Judah. And, and so what is here, what is God trying to say here? What is God saying about Judah? Why, and in terms of this question, this rhetorical question. Well, this, this verse, is, this one line is actually very difficult to translate. And the, the, main, the main word that God wants to leave for Judah here is to tell Judah, hey, do not doubt God. Do not doubt God. Uh, This this rhetorical question here in verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? Um, It's it's actually more than, it's not about plotting against the Lord. A better translation, in my opinion, is saying something like, what do you think towards the Lord? What do you think about the Lord? What do you think about Yahweh? The reason I believe that is because this one preposition here, it's not necessarily translated as against, but as rather, rather a translation is better as towards. And so what do you think towards the Lord? What do you think about the Lord here? And when we understand why God's asking this. Because when we think about Israel's predicament here, right? They're, they're, they're not standing face to face with their enemy. They're more like a scared puppy, right? Cowering in fear in front of this alpha dog. Right? And they recognize that the Syrian Empire is powerful, and they are no match to them. Right? And we recognize power when we see it, right? When we look around and we recognize who's powerful and who's not. Oh, we recognize the power of CEOs, right? Titles. Titles matter. They hold rank. They hold power. We recognize power of politicians, right? They make laws. They, can, they have money. They have power. We recognize even power celebrities, right? Uh, there's a certain fame and, and and the platform you have gives you power. We understand even the power of public perception, what what the public says, the majority voice. We understand power. And when you stand before someone who has power over you, and, and here in the case of Israel, stand before Assyria, who seems to hold their nation, their lives in, the, in, in their hands. I mean, what would you do? How would you think about this? In face of this insurmountable obstacle, do you then, would you doubt God? Here, hear God questions that. What do you think about Yahweh? What do you think about the Lord? And here the answer comes. He will make a complete end. A complete end. Nahum here proclaims with utter certainty that Nineveh will fall, that God will win against his enemies. And this is great news. For the enemies against God's people are enemies of God and God will not fail. This prophecy of judgment here against Nineveh becomes a prophecy of hope for his people because Yahweh, the God Almighty, is on their side. So we see here, that he will make a complete end, and such a complete end that this trouble will not rise up a second time. They will be destroyed, annihilated. And then we see in verse 10, kind of just what's going on. How is this being played out right now? And in verse 10, we see the, we see two imagery here laid out. Uh, it, says, it says, describing Nineveh, describing the Syrian empire, it says, For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. The entangled thorns here, uh, they, they represent the arrogance and stubbornness of Assyria. Right? It's it's a wickedness that they portray. It becomes like an intertwined mess and it sticks there. It doesn't move. It's it's complex. It's It's rooted in. And there's no clear sense of morality. It's, it's dangerous. It's a bunch of thorns sticking everywhere. And then we, we sit here talking about drunkards. They're like drunkards as they drink. The drunkards represent their self-confidence. Right? It talks about them being, not, being, not paying attention, thinking that they got it all, that they're the ones on top. No one can touch them, right? A, a historical tradition, a historical traditions uh, in terms of historians, uh, they actually, they speak of how Nineveh's defenders, when they have studied the history of Nineveh, and uh, they speak of how Nineveh's defenders would engage with riotous drinking, thinking that you know, their, their city, their walls, they're impenetrable. So they will go off drinking, get drunk, and not really protect the cities because they think they're all that. They think that no one can conquer them. And so they thought they were safe, they thought they were secure, and they thought that no one can challenge them at all. But what we see here in verse 10 is that they are like entangled thorns. They are like drunkards that they drink, but they will be consumed like stubble, fully dried. What we see here is that what they're actually doing is they're building up to their own downfall. An empire that took decades to build will fall in a matter of days. God is building up his wrath against them. And this speaks back to what we saw earlier in verse 3 in chapter 1. Right? In verse 3 of chapter 1, it says that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. What we see here is that God's anger is slowly building up. Right? You see these they're, they're thorns, they're becoming more entangled, they're growing bigger and bigger, but what's actually happening is that these thorns are just kindled for a brush fire. In the same way... When we look upon the wickedness of the world today, we look upon evil in the world today, we look upon pagans and we look upon those who don't believe and our hearts do pray for them. But at the same time, when we think about the injustice, the oppression that's happening around us, we should also remember that the wicked today, they are also building up their own kindle for God's fiery wrath. They too will not escape judgments. We see this played out when we studied 1 Thessalonians last year, we saw this, right? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, it says this, talking about persecution. It says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and posed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Here's he. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. We see in this passage that though persecution comes against the church, comes against the gospel, and there are those who are going to stop Christianity from spreading forth, from spreading out. They are just filling up the measure of their sins. And once that cup is full, God's wrath will be poured out. They're simply kindled to God's wrath. So then coming back to Nahum, we see here that those Syrian empires may look mighty, may look great. God has a plan. and They will not stand. Nineveh, the, the, the keystone, the, the apex of the, empire, of the Syrian empire, the great city of Nineveh will fall. Then when we look at verse 14 of Nahum. And we look then here in verse 14. God now addresses Nineveh again. Just as Nineveh again. And we see here the extent of God's judgment. The extent of God's judgment. And the word to Nineveh here from God is that their judgment will be permanent. Their judgment will leave them practically extinct. And there's three things that God points out here. Says here first, no more shall your name be perpetuated, meaning your name will not go, will not go beyond this current generation. One commentator points out how the king of Syria during this time uh, he prayed that his name will carry on through the, his sons and his descendants. Right, this is something he wanted to do. He wanted his name to carry forth and that his line will continue on. And it's as if God here is speaking directly to the king of this time, saying, you will not last beyond this generation. You you think that you can go on beyond this? No, I have the final word. You see, God here here is is going to cut off and utterly destroy Nineveh and the Syrian empire so that not even the king and his line will continue. Then it says here, From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. In other words, the idols here will fall. Again, the Syrians, they will proclaim that the power and might of their gods are greater than all these other nations, including Yahweh of Israel. Yet in the end these idols like any other gods and idols will fall in humiliation before the lord because god yahweh alone is the lord the sovereign lord of all and then it says here that he will make a grave out of them that he that they will they will die and they will not rise again that they will be buried and they will Perhaps be forgotten. And the reason here of all this is because you are vile. That The direct translation of this is that you are of no significance. You are worthless. You are of no significance. Your power is vain and your achievements mean nothing. And, and this is... This is something that we should just take into heart here, because the Assyrian Empire, great as they are, self-confidence, right, thinking that they have it all, that that they they answer to no one. The highest self-esteem you can find. And yet, undermined, just like that, by God. And we think about you know, in our culture today, and we think about the self-esteem issues, right? Our society, they want to give significance and affirmation to every vice, uh, to every person. Um, and, and, and yes, every human being does indeed have value, right? We, we recognize that as Christians, they do have value. Every person, every body has value. But the world and our society are seeking self-esteem and value all in the wrong places. Because at the end of the day, man's value comes from God and God alone. For we are created in the image of God. And so to pursue any, any other idol, to pursue any other idol, to pursue another name, making your own name away apart from God, is to pursue vanity, to pursue nothingness of no significance. And it will all end up in the grave with a blank tombstone what is there's no meaning behind anything else apart from God and so we see all this judgments condemnation prophesied promise to Nineveh but this here this prophecy here is not just a prophecy of judgment. It's a prophecy of hope as well. And we have to remember that, right? As we're talking about judgment, we also want to come to see how this judgment plays out as salvation for Judah, for God's people, right? And we come here now to see that there's also indeed a complete salvation for Judah, for God's people. And we see this in verse 12 and 13, and also in verse 15. Uh, first in verse 12, we come here and we see that Judah has indeed hope and comfort found in God alone. It says here in verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many. And so what we see here in this prophecy is that the Syrian empire is at full strength and they are large, they are expanding, they are many. This is the Syrian empire at, its, at the height of its power. And this is a reminder, then, that this is a prophecy. Right? This is not Nahum writing after the fact that Nahum is that Nineveh has collapsed. This is not Nahum writing as he sees the power of, of the Syrian Empire decreasing, diminishing. This is Nahum giving the prophecy at the height of the Syrian Empire, at the height of its power, and it's 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 at the point when Assyria seems unbeatable. Right. This is, seems like what's the point of even challenging Syria? This is this is like the Golden State Warriors when they had Kevin Durant on their team. This is this is like Kobe and Shaq on the Lakers or the Bulls with Michael Jordan. They seem undefeatable, and yet Nahum here declares from God that the empire, the Syrian empire, will fall. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down. And the phrase after "cut down" says "and pass away." Um, and, and actually, the in the Hebrews, they will be cut down. I mean, this is the, in terms of the translation here. You can trust it; it's a good translation. Um, but I, I think in the Hebrews, there's a more literal way of translating. It says they will be cut down, and he passes over. And I believe he's talking about God. That like God will pass over Assyria and bring it to its knees. And then when we think about God passing over a land, it eludes us, it makes us think about God passing over Egypt, right? When Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God passed over them with the angel of death, and yet God spared his people. Again, we see how God uses judgments to save his people. In the same way here with Nineveh, the promise here is that God will judge Nineveh and save his people. This reminds us that God is indeed in control and he's in control of all suffering, of all afflictions. And we see that further explicitly point out at the end of verse 12, it says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. I hear talking about God, God is the one who allowed the Syrian Empire to rise up and be one that dominates over Israel. God here is the one that allowed Judah to be afflicted, and is a, and is to be is to help us remember that the Syrian Empire rose up in its power. This the Syrian Empire rose up in power and dominate over Judah, over Israel, because of sin, because of their sin judah was disobedient and so god punished him this is the consequence of sin in fact when we think about human suffering all human suffering happens because of sin now that doesn't mean that when you suffer it's directly your fault i'm not saying that you you could indeed be a victim but you're a victim of someone else's sin right and so when I'm talking about sin here, I'm not talking about just your sin, but I'm talking about sin as a whole. That is a reminder that human sin, our sin as mankind has corrupted God's perfect creation. And so there is chaos, there's unrest, there's disruption, and there's also suffering in this world. And to so recognize that the reason why we see so many issues and problems in the world is because of humankind's sin. And this then, this passage here, here, this verse, though I have afflicted you, reminds us that our afflictions, our suffering is in the control of God. And what is what that means is that there is purpose behind it. There is purpose behind suffering. There's purpose behind trials, there's purpose behind affliction. And that purpose is to bring you back to God. God is the one who allows affliction to happen, and so God is in control of whatever trials you may be going through, even today, whatever, you may, whatever you're facing, know that it's not random. Know that God is in control and know when, God, when we say God is in control of affliction and suffering, it doesn't mean God here is at fault, right? Scripture always says God is good and not evil. But what, we, what, what Scripture affirms is that God uses evil in this world for good. He uses evil in this world. He uses stuff like trials and suffering to remind you that you are not the one in control that God is in control, and you are to answer to Him. And what we find in all this is that the only safe place from God's affliction is actually in God Himself. Go to the one who is mighty. Go to the one who is powerful. Go to the one who is great and in control, sovereign over all things, including your suffering. You see, while God's judgment against his enemies is eternal and unrelenting, remember that God's affliction against his people is temporary. Because he says here, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. That's a promise only given to his people. Not eternal torment, but temporary affliction. Is meant for good. It is meant to bring you to a closer relationship with God. As we keep reading here, in verse 13, it starts with the phrase, end now. And this shows us the imminence of this judgment and salvation. That this phrase, this phrase, end now, brings God's prophecy here to life. It, it, it's, it's not saying that it will happen at this very moment because it, Nineveh's fall fell, came years after this prophecy, but it's enforcing an immediate response. End now. To understand that this is not just a false promise, but this is one that's guaranteed because God is the one who said it. That can happen at any moment. You see, the idea here is that God's judgment against Nineveh will come unexpectedly. This will fall in line with the biblical doctrine of imminence. Imminence is an eschatological doctrine, meaning it's a doctrine that refers to stuff in future events. And it describes how God's prophecy can happen at any moment. And this is what it's talking about here. God's prophecies, God's promises, many times it happens unexpectedly. We see this again in the New Testament in First Thessalonians. in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse three, it says, "When people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape." Judgment will come unexpectedly when people think things are going well. And yet we are also reminded in the same passage in 1 Thessalonians that when judgment falls upon the wicked, it will be salvation for those who trust in the Lord. We jump to verse nine says for God has not destined us believers for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This here is the great promise. This is the kind of comfort, That Nahum is trying to encourage Israel with, to remind them that this affliction is temporary, that God remains faithful to them, that the God who afflicts them is also the God who will redeem them. This is the same and true for you, whatever trials you may go through. And we see here that God's control of all things, both in your redemption and in your affliction. And God's control of all these things because, in the end, it is God who gets the glory. God gets the glory as both judge and savior. We see here in verse 15, back in Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a praise, an utter praise to God for what he's doing. We see here first a joyous response from his people, telling them, Behold, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who publishes shalom. And when we talk about peace, we're talking about wholeness, a completeness, a quality of life that is that's just unfathomable. Behold this news. Hear and receive it and rejoice. You can rejoice today in the good promises of God. And so Judah, keep your feasts. Meaning celebrates Remember God's work of salvation. It hasn't happened yet. But yet do it. Keep your feasts and fulfill your vows remain faithful. Remain faithful. Remember your vows. Remember the covenant that you have with the Lord. The relationship that you share with Him. And then remember God's promise. For He says, never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Again, the word worthless here, Belial is mentioned here. I believe here he's talking about the Assyrian Empire, talking about Nineveh, because we do know that after the Assyrian Empire fell, uh, Israel actually did go into exile, um, but underneath the Babylonian Empire. And so, I, I, so does this this verse here? I mean, saying he's utterly cut off, he won't rise up again. I, I believe he's talking specifically about Syria, talking specifically about Nineveh, and they'll be free from that. And what we see here in verse thirteen, we see in verse thirteen is that salvation for Judah is not simply just being free from this oppression, being free from this danger that we find in the Syrian Empire, but it's also about being restored. About being restored into a position where they can freely worship God. Because that's what they were called to do. That's what they were meant to do. They were God's nation, God's people. They were to keep the feasts, fulfill the vows, to behold Him, to behold the great God. They are to be free to worship God, restored in the place where they can be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This here is God's promise of hope and comfort. And so what we see through this whole passage, we see here that God's glory comes. God's glory comes by saving his people through fiery judgment. God brings his glory, brings glory to his name by saving his people through the fires of his judgment. We see here that as judgment falls, salvation comes as well. This here, we see, and when we talk again coming back around to the introduction, we think about salvation. We cannot separate that from judgment, judgment. Will come, but through judgments, God will redeem his people, save them, and restore them. And we see that most clearly portrayed in the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, we get this, the idea, the image of the cross, immortal image, a reality, the historical event. The cross portrays the glory of Christ as he saves his church, not by removing judgment, but by taking it upon himself, the full wrath of God against your sins. Judgment falls but this time not upon a nation that's wicked, that deserves judgment, judgment falls, your judgment falls upon an innocent man who doesn't deserve it. And yet he takes it on so that you may be free, but more than just free, but so that you may be restored as an image of God, a worshiper of his name. This is the heart of the gospel. And this is the heart of gospel that God's glory, God's salvation comes through his judgments. And we see this over and over again throughout history, that God saves his people through judgment. He demonstrates this over and over again. He shows this with Israel and Egypt, judgment falling upon Egypt, crushing them at the Red Sea. And yet, Israel was led through the same Red Sea safely. We see this with David and Saul. David, God's anointed one, yet being traced by Saul, being being persecuted by him, being threatened by Saul. I mean, God could have just put David onto the throne easy. Why did David have to go through all this affliction? It's to remind David that there is a special relationship. To remind David that he can trust in the Lord. We see this here. In Nahum, with the Syrian empire, and we see it later with the history of Israel, with the Babylonian empire, when they go into exile. Over and over again, God demonstrates that his salvation comes through judgment. And all is this to say, all is this to tell us, teach us, the church, right now, that you cannot save yourself. Only God can do the impossible. To remind us that your sin condemns you and that God's judgment is indeed inevitable. You cannot save yourself. No matter what we do, we cannot escape our sufferings when we are in trial, when we are afflicted, when we are oppressed, and we are victims of certain grief. Don't we just feel helpless? Don't we feel like we don't know what to do, that these are just out of our control? Let's so remind us that you cannot save yourself. You are not the one in control, God is. And so the gospel says, when you put your trust in Christ, when you put your hope in Christ, the son of God, you find out that God is the one, that Jesus is the one who will endure our judgment so that we may be saved, not by our works, but by the work of an innocent man who hung on that cross for you. It is in Christ alone that we can find shalom, peace. And this becomes the greatest news that we can ever proclaim. This becomes the greatest news that we can ever proclaim because when we look upon this world out there, we see a world that's indeed hurting. We see a world that's hurting, a world that's suffering. We see all the debates out there, people who are suffering. We see debates about stuff going on about abuse, about racism, injustice, division. We talk about persecution, the church. We talk about all these things. Some of us... Here, we're just facing different sufferings and afflictions. There's even personal ones, not just cultural ideologies, but even personal ones like death. Facing death within family, amongst friends, and the grief that comes from that. And we're facing trouble within our own family, amongst our own household, division. There's struggles all over the place, and suffering people, sufferers are looking for hope and comforts because they're hoping to escape their afflictions. And what what really troubles those who suffer, imagine a victim of some kind of injustice and the person who has oppressed and the person who has abused them or whatever the case may be, that person does end up getting caught, being tried, put in jail, sentenced, Is that truly, that may bring some vindication to the victim, but that doesn't create healing, right? That doesn't necessarily create a restoration because they are still a victim. They are still hurting. They're still suffering from the experience, from the trauma, from whatever may have happened. Maybe we have experienced that ourselves, that there are certain pains in our life that leaves a scar, that continues to ache here and there over time. What sufferers need to hear is that their affliction has meaning, that it means something, that they're not, that this, whatever may have happened to them, whatever is going on in their lives is not random. It's not out of nowhere, but that there is meaning and true meaning can only be found in the eternal God who works all things. For the good of his glory. And we see here that affliction becomes then the foreshadow of a greater judgment to come. Affliction tells people, tells us that you cannot save yourself. Affliction points you back to a God of hope. A God who says, I can make this good. I can redeem you. I can save you. And more than that, I can restore you. And there becomes a hope and a peace and a comfort that we can find in God alone. A hope that's not in this present affliction, but a hope that's found in this future redemption. That is what we need to hear. That is what we need to proclaim. And so we can say, so that we can bring people to say, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart for this light momentary affliction preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This glory is not your own glory, but it's the glory of God who worked in your life to bring you to this realization, this fulfillment of his promises and hope, a fulfillment of the salvation he began in your life. This is the good news. We're not sharing the gospel simply to get out of, to get to heaven, but we are to experience it as a restoration, become who we're created to be, worshipers of God, free from pain, God promises to wipe away all tears. But it won't happen in this lifetime. It will happen in the future redemption. And so to end in this message, let us remember that this is some good news that we ought to proclaim to unbelievers. And this this mess, this this message here in Nahum was indeed referenced again, probably alluded to, I don't think it's a direct reference, but alluded to by Paul to remind us that we then, the church, we become like Nahum, we carry this message forward. This message of good news, of hope and comfort through this world of suffering. We carry them to them, to remind them, to show them, to teach them that whatever they may be going through, whatever they may be struggling with, there is indeed a hope found, not in this world, but in God. And so we see in Romans 10, chapter 14 and 15, or chapter <laughs> chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Paul writing, How then will they call on him in whom they have no in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let us carry forth then this message of hope. And this message of hope that comes through judgment, but it's to show people that the judgment that was meant for them fell upon the cross with Jesus Christ on. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your grace that covers us, sustains us, carries us, that gives us confidence and courage, that... Reminds us that we stand upon solid rock and all other ground is sinking sand. Because, Lord, you are rock, are in control. And you, our rock, gives us hope. Because we know that our life is not purposeless, our life is not meaningless, but our life has indeed a great and grand purpose, to glorify you. And so let us then share this great news to others, to continue to bring more worshipers to you, to allow more and more people to realize and see that the comfort and hope that they so desire comes from you alone. Father, you are indeed good. But let us also remember as judgment is promised to this world, to sin. Let us remember that it can come. That it can come at any time. And so let us, Lord, just with a certain urgency, worship you, praise you, and proclaim your good news to others. Let us show them that the judgment to come, you have given us a solution in your Son, an answer to all things. Your son, who died on the cross, was buried and was raised again on the third day to show us that he has defeated death and sin. Your son, our hope and comfort. All that we can ever ask for. Lord, thank you for being a good God, a glorious God, a God who is both judge and savior. Let us continue to have our hope in you so be with us now as we go off into our discussion groups, as we continue to fellowship with one another, whether we're here in person or online, let us now continue to go forth in your spirits to be encouraged and continue to walk together in the name of Christ. I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.